welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. Okay, so let's talk about hell, because that's everyone's favorite topic. Um, I'm going to preface this by saying my purpose in sharing about hell is not to... Um, change what you believe or even tell you what to believe uh, my purpose of talking about how is to challenge what you believe whatever you might believe um, and to present to you some information that you might not have been presented with regarding how um, and maybe to make some of the ways you view how a bit more inclusive um, in that a lot of people in the church have a there's only one way to view this and everyone that views it differently, well, they're going to hell. <laughs> or they're, they're wrong, right? And my way is the right way, they're the wrong way. Um, and one of the things I want to talk about is the fact that in church history there's been quite a few different views and more often than not, those different views have worked harmoniously together. They've seen each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if nothing else, what I'd hope is that by the end of this conversation, you would be able to look at people that view the afterlife differently to you as your brothers and sisters, as part of parcel of the same faith and tradition. Um, so before we, we start uh, talking about the Bible, I think it's important that we understand that um, the history of which hell kind of arises. Um, and so... I started studying philosophy uh, not too long ago. Um, my my fiance Tilly, she's a, got a degree in philosophy. She's quite uh, philosophical in her way of thinking and, and her knowledge. Um, and so we've been talking a lot about different things. And, and it caused me to think, you know, I really need to study more. And one of the things that really surprised me is, you know, this, I think sometimes we think, wow, there's no new thought under the earth. You know, like if someone comes up with an idea, it's like, oh, yeah, but I'm sure someone had that idea before. And that's maybe true in a lot of ways these days. But the truth is that there, throughout history, have been moments where someone thought of something for the first time. No one had ever thought it before, or at least no one knew anyone else had thought it before. And it actually changed the way that everyone else could think. And so, you know, an example is um, when we were talking about how Israel comes about, it, it, becomes, it, it presents a monotheistic religion, a, a religion around one God. That was a brand new thought. No one had the idea of one God before. Everyone just assumed there was many gods. Like, it just didn't. And so we talk about uh, religion, we talk about gods, we talk about monotheism. Like, we don't have a problem with that because we've always grown up in a world where, in fact, most of the religions we know of are about one God. Um, so it's not a problem for us. But when people first started hearing about monotheism, it was a real problem it was a it was a headache it was like but wait what like there's got to be lots of gods i mean one god managing everything you know it was, it was a big thing and we look at that and we think that's kind of silly like it's not that hard a concept to grasp but it was a brand new concept like it was it changed everything um if you look at some of the the philosophers plato and um socrates and um and, and these guys um these hellenistic philosophers you know around the maybe as late as 600 uh, bc but probably a bit uh, earlier, you know, a bit later, um, or early, sorry, 600, but a bit later, 500, 400 BC, these sort of time periods, we see philosophers in Greece starting to actually ask real big questions and go, well, hold on, we've ascribed certain things to the gods, but can there be natural laws? And all of a sudden, people thought, well, maybe there's natural laws. Like, and we're like, wait, you know, no one had thought of that before? It's like so obvious. Like, of course, there's something like, um, we think of gravity or, you know, we think of, you know, the laws of uh, force and motion. And, um, but actually those came hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after even someone thought maybe there's like natural laws. And actually some of the natural laws they thought of were completely way off. And then other things you think of these philosophers, they are sitting there and they're mulling over things in their heads and they don't have the scientific equipment we have. And so it amazes me that um, you have philosophers that sit there and go, I wonder if like the world is made of lots of tiny little things and there's like different tiny little things and if you put them together in different ways it makes different things so wood could be lots of one thing and another thing and another thing and you put it together in a certain way and it makes wood and water would be a totally different thing because obviously it's very different from woods but it's still made up of lots of little things that we just can't see and you're like 
these guys are talking about atoms thousands of years as well at least one and a half more than one and a half thousand years before we even have thought like about what atoms could be and like how it works you know and and so it's pretty amazing that these guys have these thoughts um and I think it's important that we recognize as we read through our Bible, certain thoughts didn't exist. Like they didn't know about atoms. They didn't know the world was round. They didn't know, you know, like there's lots of things they didn't know. Um, you might look at something simple like um, the man who brings his son to Jesus who every now and again falls over and shakes and has these seizures and foams at the mouth and he's demon-possessed, right? Well, maybe, but odds are he had epilepsy and Jesus healed him. And their language for that was, well, we don't understand epilepsy, right? I mean, they don't understand mo- most of what we would call modern medicine. They just go, he's got a demon that causes him to fall over and shake. And then Jesus got rid of that demon. And now he doesn't fall over and shake. So they've given language to something that probably was something as simple as, 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 simple as epilepsy could be, as simple as epilepsy. Probably. Maybe he had a demon as well and it just presented like, uh, we don't know. Um, but it's not like a demon showed up and says, hi, my name's Greg, I'm sorry for doing that, I'm out of here now. You know what I mean? Like, we don't have that. All we know is that they said he has an ep- a demon that causes him to fall over and shake and foam at the mouth. And then Jesus prayed for him and the demon left, quote unquote, because it doesn't say like, you know, like they saw a spirit will offer it. He just stopped having seizures. So it could be he just healed the guy. You know, and so again, it's language. They don't know what epilepsy is, so they're going to call it a demon. You know, they don't know why the sun goes down, so they call it a fight between the sun god and the day god, and the day god and the night god, the sun god and the moon god, or you know, whatever it is. Like, there's there's journeys along the way where they're discovering new things, and one of these things is the notion of hell, and even the notion of heaven in some ways. So, at a certain point, someone starts to question. Is this all there is? Do we live and then die and go into the ground and that's it? Because that actually was, on some level, what people believed. And they started to come up with different ideas. Maybe you become one of the stars in the sky. Maybe, you know, you become something else. Maybe, you know, at certain points we had reincarnation. Maybe you come back as someone else. Maybe, um, maybe you know, you go to a magical, peaceful place, a wonderful place, a paradise of rest and peace and no more suffering. So that might be the creation, that kind of thought would be the beginnings of something called heaven. Um, But it took a really, really, really long time before they started to have the notion of if you've done terrible, awful things, you would go to this place called hell. And in fact, uh, most Jews believe in something called conditional immortality. And so um, if you read through the Old Testament, you don't find hell. There's two passages that might talk about it, but it's a big stretch to make it into hell. Um, you've got a passage in uh, Isaiah and a passage in Daniel. Um, and so uh, the passage in Isaiah talks about um, the bodies um, being eaten away by worms eternally, you know, like, in, um, and you, you look at that and we, we look at this passage of like hell fire and this fire and his bodies being eaten away in, in this valley of uh, Gehenna, which is this uh, Hinnom uh, in the Greek, uh, in the, in the uh, Hebrew it's it's a hard one to say that's about hell. We might see that language of fire and maggots and all this stuff and go, oh yeah, hell. But there were bodies being eaten away. There were dead bodies in fire in a valley being eaten by maggots. Like, it doesn't sound like, you know, eternal pain, suffering, screaming, you know, like, it just sounds a bit different, doesn't it? So I would say it's much more likely that someone just had a vision of people being burnt and being eaten by maggots because they disobeyed. Um, in Isaiah, in uh, Daniel, the other passages, he says, uh, in that day, um, some will be raised to everlasting life and some will be raised to everlasting death. Now, the problem is that everlasting there, um, the word is uh, olam. And it doesn't actually mean like forever and ever and ever and ever. It means a period of time. Sometimes in the Bible, that's translated as an hour. Other times it's translated as a day. Other times it's really translated as years. And so someone has chosen to translate it as everlasting. But what's probably happened there is they've looked at that Hebrew word, olam, and they've gone, right, raised up to death, raised up to life. They're talking about heaven and hell. My theology, as someone that is English speaking, so we're already talking thousands of years after that was written. My theology says probably about heaven and hell. So let's make it everlasting. That's what that time period should be. But it's a big jump and also it's the only passage in the whole Old Testament that talks about this so 
it is a really big jump to presume that. It's also a late text. It was added to Daniel quite late. Um, and so it was added maybe around, I, I don't know the exact figures, but I'm pretty sure it was while they were in exile. Um, and so certainly um, maybe even post-exile. So it was a late, late text. Um, and so it doesn't represent the theology of Israel before um, the exile. Um, now, why is that important? In the exile, there's a lot of stuff that Israel has started to be exposed to. Um, they're exposed to different gods. They're exposed to different culture. They're exposed to different religions. Remember, they were taken away from Israel. They were intermarried with different uh, people of different cultures and different communities and different countries because that's how they got people to um, serve Babylon is they would grab someone from Islam. Uh, uh, they would grab a bunch of people from Israel and they would get one to marry a person from over there, one to marry a person from over there, one to marry a person over there. So they're not even marrying two nations together because at least then you could have two nations rising up against Babylon. But they're actually like, intermarrying amongst multiple nations and so no one really has an identity anymore um, there's no cohesion you know um, and so but what happens is they're getting exposed to all these different religions and at the same time this is actually when in Greece this Hellenistic philosophy is starting to be born and so people are starting to think of things like dualism the idea of good versus evil spiritual things being possible that there's a, there's a spiritual world you look at Plato's concept that there was a spiritual world out there and then there's a, this is just a physical, um, fleshy representation of what the physical world is. So he had a concept of, um, in, the physical, in the spiritual, there was perfection. So all horses are horses, right? You look at a horse and you go, that's a horse. But they're not all exactly the same. But they were all came from a caste or like a, um, a representative. And that would be the perfect horse. And the perfect horse was in the spirit. And all these physical ones were just a copy of it. It's like if you if you got like a cast and you poured like metal in it and you cast up metal horse every time. They, they would all look like a metal horse, but some of them might not be identical. Some of them might be flawed. Some of them might not. But the cast is perfect. Um, and, and that was his concept. So we as humans, you, we look at us and we're all like, oh, well, you're a human. You can identify you quickly as a human, but you're different. And he would say in the spirit, there was a perfect human, a perfect thing. And so he created basically what became quite Gnostic, this dualistic thinking of spiritual things are perfect and good and pure and holy. And physical things are bad and terrible and not really that great because they're imperfect. They're not what really should be. And actually that starts filtering into Judaism as well. Um, but the Jews never had that theo theology at all. All the way through the Old Testament, the Jews think we're God's creation. We're, we're good. We're holy. We're, we're, we're righteous. This is who we are. We're, we're, we're God's beloved. Um, we're God's creation. God's creation is good. But God's creation is very good. And we at the pinnacle of God's creation are very good. Um, and so you can see that they're getting exposed to a lot of different stuff. And there's a lot of travel happening as well. So um, in Greece, there's lots of people going through Greece and out of Greece getting exposed to a lot of this philosophy. Rome starts to expand and they're getting exposed to a lot of this philosophy. And so Roman philosophy comes about as well as this Greek philosophy. And in the midst of that, people get exposed to something that um, as much as I've studied and as much as everyone I know who studied this has can come to a conclusion. It seems that the Zoroastrians were the first people to come up with a concept of hell. Um, and so they had the concept of there is God and he lives in a place called heaven and it's perfect and it's pure. Um, and then there's the, the, this evil being Satan or, you know, something like that would be how we would represent it. And he lives in this terrible, fiery, awful place. And if you're good, you get to go and live with God in this perfect place. If you're bad, you go to this evil, dark place and this being punishes you forever, right? Um, so you can see immediately it's not quite what we believe, although some Christians maybe do believe it, that Satan's punishing you in hell forever. I mean, you can see that in like, you ever see cartoon sketches and things and, um, and it's always Satan is there in hell punishing people. And you're like, well, but Satan is going to be punished just as much, right? Satan was the bad guy. He's not like he gets uh, to live it up in his paradise where he gets to punish people. Um, and so there's, there's some slight differences, but this theology starts to filter in to Judaism. Um, and so actually what we find is, and this is really interesting, um, up until this period, the, the intertestament, uh, intertestamental period, so the period between the Old and the New Testament, it's like a 400-year period, um, in this period, there's a lot of change happens because this period is crazy with like lots of new ideas and philosophical thought getting exposed to lots of new religions. Um, in this time period, a lot of things happen. And what's interesting is the Pharisees are the ones that introduce the concept of hell and heaven. Um, because 
believe it or not, the Pharisees are the liberals. They're the progressives, right? So we actually hear the word Pharisee and we think, oh, they're evil, bad, terrible people. Especially for charismatic, right? We're like, oh, well, we're, we're great and we're not a pharisaical, like fundamental Christians that don't believe in healing or things like that. Pharisees believed in healing. They really believed in healing. They believed in healing. They believed in angels. They believed in demons. They believed in hell. They believed in heaven. Other groups didn't believe that in Israel. They didn't believe in healing. They didn't believe in the resurrection. This is why, remember, they come and tr- try and chip up Jesus and they're like, come on, the resurrection? Really? Like, how's that going to work? Like, you marry this woman and then you die. And then so she marries someone else and he dies. And then she marries someone else and he dies. And then when they all get resurrected, well, how's that going to work? That's going to be a weird, like, house. Um, so they're trying to trip up Jesus because they're like going, there's obviously not a resurrection. So there's groups of Jews that don't believe in the resurrection. And there's groups of Jews that do believe in the resurrection. Um, and in fact, this, this um, concept of conditional immortality, before they come up with this concept of hell, there is a bit of concept of heaven, of going to be with God forever. Um, and so conditional immortality was that you are not an eternal being. You are a mortal being, and when you die, you will rot in the ground forever. But God will grant to those who are faithful, to those who love him, to those who walk his ways, who uh, love his words and love him, do good he will grant them immortality. So he will give them the gift of immortality and they'll spend eternity with God. And that's what most Jews probably believed. Certainly early on, probably a little bit less as time progresses, they believed that, yes, that might be true, but actually hell was another option. They started to bring into this belief. Now, let me preface this. Just because they didn't believe in hell at the beginning doesn't mean hell isn't real or true or or a thing. It's just, this is just history. This is just how they grew and learned, okay? In the same way that at the beginning, most of uh, the, the patriarchs didn't believe in God as the only God. They believed in lots of gods and God was the greatest God. It doesn't mean they were right. It just is the journey they went on. And so I'm not trying to take away hell by presenting a journey. Hey, guys, are you going to hang out? Yeah. I'm talking about hell. Um, it's a favorite topic. Um, we're doing lots of Q&A this afternoon as well, actually, if you're around. No, camera. I wasn't afraid of No. Yeah, Um, oh, you're fine. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Good to see you. So, but they've gone on this journey, right? So they've gone on this journey of, well, we're just mortal beings. And then they go on this journey to like, well, we're mortal beings, but God blesses some people, the faithful. You know, you see in David in his Psalms, he says, God, grant me immortality. Right? Very clear explanation of what David's theology is. I'm not immortal. I'm not immortal. I'm a mortal being. But because I'm good, God, because I follow you, because I'm after your heart, give me immortality. Let me live forever with you. And then as time progresses, some more theology comes in where Maybe actually it's not just that you get to go and live with God forever. If you're really bad, maybe you go and suffer on some level forever. Um, and so this is just an ongoing explanation of what are, we, what are we believing, what's happening. And so then you come to the New Testament, and this is the first time we've got some Bible after a lot of these changes and things are happening. Um, and so there's lots of stuff about hell in one sense. Um, Hell's mentioned quite a few times throughout the New Testament. The, the issue that we have is hell's not mentioned the way we want it to be. It's not mentioned as a place you go and you get burned forever and you suffer. and you, it's, it's not really meant in, mentioned in that way. There's, uh, there's mention of, hey, there will be hellfire. Hey, there will be um, suffering. Hey, there will be um, fire that burns away wheat and rubble and, and brings about gems and gemstone. There's even, um, you know, there's a parable of a, a guy who goes and ends up in hell and someone else ends up in heaven. But again, like, it's a parable. I'm not sure you can make a theology out of a parable, right? Not the actual, the, the, the details of the, the parable. You make a theology out of the message of the parable, but not necessarily the details, right? Um, and so... There's lots of things mentioned about hell, but what we find is more often than not, if you look up that word in, uh, in your Bible, anytime you see the word hell in the New Testament, you'll see a little star. And next to the star, you'll, you look down at the bottom of the page and you'll see another star and it says, literally, Gehenna. That's what it says every time, right? Because 
it's not our word hell. They didn't have our word for hell. They had their word, Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is really important because Gehenna was a valley in Jerusalem. It actually, it's right there, and you can go and visit the valley of uh, Gehenna today. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was um, said differently because the Greeks and the Hebrew, uh, Greek and Hebrew, is different. In the Old Testament, it's the valley of Hinnom. Um, and so we talked about, remember, the bodies being cast into the valley and they'd be set on fire and there'd be maggots eating them away. That was, they were cast into the valley of Hinnom. And that was their punishment for disobeying God as they were cast into that and they would be burned up. Um, now, that's what they got because they worshipped uh, worshipped Molech and they killed their babies. So pretty severe punishment. You get cast into the valley of Hinnom. Um, another time, actually, it's mentioned is it mentions that they are sacrificing babies in the Valley of Hinnom. But the Valley of Hinnom is a very real place, and it has some very real, dark, terrible stuff going on. And so, if I, if there was a place in Sale that was like a really sketchy place where people like got brutally murdered and killed, or you know, horrible things happened, and I said, hey. Watch out! You don't. You better sort out your, the way you're going, or you might end up like all those people. You wouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion I'm saying you're going to burn forever and ever and ever in a eternal place, right? So when Jesus says, "Hey, watch what you're doing," or you might end up in the Valley of Gehenna, you might end up in Gehenna. You might end up in hell. We read, "Watch what you're doing." You might end up in hell. But he's saying, "Hey, watch your trajectory. You might end up burning in the Valley of Gehenna with maggots eating you again, because." You're doing what your ancestors did. You're worshipping false gods. You're worshipping idols. You're doing the wrong thing. Now, it could mean, as well, about eternal life. Like, you know, I'm not saying it can, but I'm saying there's probably some real tangible meaning to that to someone that's there in that day, whenever it was, you know, 30 AD, and they're going, oh, yeah, the valley of don't want to do that, right? Because it's a messed up place. The lake of fire. We have language for that, don't we? The lake of fire. Oh, the cast into the lake of fire. Well, what was the lake of fire? It was the Dead Sea. What happens at the Dead Sea? Sodom was there. The fire of God came down, burned up Sodom, and the whole sea turned to a sea of salt. To the point where you can like float on it, right? And it's got so much salt in it, you can just float on the water. Um, that was the lake of fire. It had a real tangible place. So when he says, hey, you're going to end up in the lake of fire, he's saying, you might end up like Sodom if you're not careful, right? And he's not necessarily saying God is going to do that either. Could be the Roman Empire. Could be the Babylons again. Well, the Babylons pretty much gone by this point. You know, like, but he's, it, it, it's, again, it requires us to make a jump saying, oh, God's going to pour out fire from heaven on us and it'll be like the lake of fire. Or, oh, God's going to cast us into the valley and, and, and cause us to... Or we go, oh, that might be more that the Romans will come in and destroy our city and we'll end up dying and be burned up in the Valley of Gehenna, which is what they actually did. When, when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, there were so many dead bodies and many of them would be eaten, but many of them became so diseased that they get scared of eating the diseased ones. And so they would throw them into the Valley of Gehenna and they would just burn up these bodies. It was a mass graveyard. And it was a terrible thing for a Jew. Like, historically... Um, as a Jew, you would have to have a proper right burial. It was part of hopefully getting that conditional immortality, right? It was part of that, hopefully I get to live forever with Jesus, was you got prepared properly, you were put in the grave properly, you know, really had a proper burial. And so the idea of everyone being thrown into a mass grave and just burned up was really scary, right? And so that's what happened in 70 AD. So when Jesus says, hey, you better watch your trajectory or you're going to end up like in the Valley of Gehenna, you're going to end up like, you know, all this different stuff. When they rebelled against Rome and Rome came in and they ended up screwing them all over and they ended up being cast into the Valley of Gehenna and they were burned up. Like, this stuff's happening in a very real, tangible right now. Now again, I'm not saying it doesn't necessarily mean there's a, there's a hell and there's a burning and there's all these different things, but I think it's important that we understand some of the different ways to interpret it. So that if people do interpret it a different way, we go, oh, well, that's a valid, reasonable way to approach scripture, to approach the Bible, to approach your faith. So in this place, we've got all these different theologies going on. And I think at times um, we can look at Jesus' teaching and go, he's clearly teaching hell. Like, oh, he's teaching hell here. Other times people can look at those passages and go, no, he's unteaching hell because hell's a new theology. And he's actually using examples, but he's actually trying to unravel it. Um, 
And other people will say, oh, maybe he's doing both. It's hard to say. And so, again, it's really hard to go, well, the Bible says, because it's hard to say what the Bible says at times. In fact, the Bible isn't that talkative about heaven or hell. In the grand scheme of things, it's not a big topic. Eternal life, life after death, two different topics in the Bible. Eternal life is not what happens after you die. It's really interesting. Eternal life is something that starts right now. Jesus doesn't say, if you come to me and you, you, you accept me, then uh, you'll immediately live forever. He says, no, when you die, you'll have... Uh, he doesn't say, when you die, you'll have eternal life. He says, no, I come that you won't die, that you will have eternal life. That you, so eternal life is separate to a physical death. Eternal life is in relation to a spiritual death. Because we still die. We still physically die. Right? I mean, if, Jesus, if that's what Jesus is talking about, that you won't die and you'll have eternal life, like then he's a liar because we do die he's talking about a spiritual death this is where he says let the dead bury the dead he's not saying like there's someone who's died let someone else die and then like you know somehow like fall on top of them so that they end up in a hole no he's saying there are people that are alive who are dead to Jesus death isn't about are you do you have a pulse to Jesus it's are you connected to me this is why he says when eternal life it's like that you know me and my father that's eternal life. So you can have eternal life right now. You just need to know Jesus and his Father. And so I don't think we're talking about eternal life in the sense of where you're going to go later, necessarily. Now, eternal life will probably include that, I think. Personally, I believe that. You know, so I believe we step into eternal life now, but we'll have eternal life later as well. We'll have eternal life right through the process. And... Um, but in the midst of all this, there's all these different theologies. And actually, we see in the New Testament, there's a lot of room for lots of different theologies as well. And so um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to present to you three overarching views. And we'll maybe look at some of the details of those views. Um, but these are the three main views that the church early on had, right from the beginning. Different people in the church had these different views. And they did life together. They accepted each other. They uh, had a relationship with one another. They um, did evangelism together. They went on mission trips together. They reached the lost together, but they disagreed on some of these points. And in fact, we've got letters throughout history of people arguing about these points, saying, oh, no, you believe that? I don't think it's like that. I think it's like this. But they still had relationship. They still loved one another. They still thought of each other as Christians. And so it's important to know that throughout history, these three views have been uh, in place and it's only in recent years that we've started to choose not to like some of the views. And so the first view is what we probably most of us have grown up with and understand um, hell to be is um, something called eternal torment or eternal punishment. And so it's the concept that um, everyone's going to die one day. So before you die, you make a choice. Either you say the prayer or you don't say the prayer or whatever it is. Maybe it's not a prayer. Maybe it's something else. You know, maybe it's joining a church or reading the Bible or a relationship with Jesus, whatever it is, you either do it or you don't. And if you don't do it, you're going to burn forever. If you do do it, you go up to heaven, it's wonderful. But if you don't do it, burning forever, suffering forever, separation from God forever, whatever it is. And within this, there's a few different theories. Maybe it's separation from God. Maybe it's God pouring out his wrath on you for eternity. Um, but it's eternal. It lasts forever. So you live a life you are hitler you are you know whoever it is genghis khan whoever you are terrible person um or maybe you're just like a decent enough person you just didn't say a prayer same difference to god you know hitler bob who loves his wife and kids but didn't say a prayer at some point right here boom you're suffering forever i'm gonna burn you i'm gonna make you suffer you're gonna hate every single second but at a certain point, we're going to not even know what a second is because we are talking bazillions of years, trillions of years, quadrillions. Of, I mean, it's just like forever and ever and ever and ever. You can think of the highest number you can think of. You're still suffering and you've got that to go again and again and again and again. So that's one of the views. And most of us probably grew up in a church that kind of believes that. They maybe didn't go into too much detail on that one because we don't like to really reveal that one because it's pretty horrible in some ways right it's a horrible thing to think about it's a horrible thing to mull over horrible to think of your friend or your family member or something like that who doesn't believe in jesus and think that that's what they're going to suffer forever 
especially if you take Jesus' parable literally, right? Because people in heaven could see people in hell. Remember that? In that parable. So that's why I'm like, well, hopefully it's not a parable. Uh, uh, hopefully it's just a parable because if it's real, I'm not sure I want to watch like my family members burn forever for billions of years. That doesn't sound like heaven to me. It sounds pretty miserable. But can you on any level imagine enjoying yourself? Watching your, I don't know, maybe your mom doesn't believe or your cousin or your best friends, watching them suffer and burn for eternity and you're sitting there going, man, it's nice over here, catching some sun, like drinking like the best wine out of a golden cup, like it's just great, you know, playing volleyball on the beach with Jesus, like, but shame for Steve over there who's burning in his own fat. Like, that doesn't sound fun at all. I couldn't, I don't think any good, healthy person could enjoy that necessarily. So I think, again, don't maybe take that parable too literally, potentially. Um, But that's what some people believe is not necessarily the whole you can see them. Some people believe that. But most people in the evangelical world believe people who do not say yes to Jesus will suffer eternal conscious torment. That's a big word in the middle as well, conscious torment. It's not that you kind of disconnect because it's a bit, it's like the same. You know, after a couple billion years, you're like, come on, what can you do that I've not had done to me yet? You know, it's just like, ah, yeah, it's all the same. I'm kind of dead to it. No, every second, every single second, you're engaged with that pain, with that agony, with that torment, every second of it. There's no, your mind drifts off or, you know, there's no, you are here 100% suffering. And, most of the most of the Western Church believes this. Most of the Evangelical Church believes this, and you are welcome to believe this. Uh, and the truth is, I'm going to read some uh, Bible verses for you. Um, there's some Bible verses that support this. You know, um, you can pull out scriptures anywhere that support all three of the different overarching views that I, I share with you. But here here are some of the, the scriptures that um, would point towards an eternal torment. Um, Isaiah 66, 24, we talked about. Um, Daniel 12, 2, we talked about that as well. Matthew 5, 22, Matthew 5, 29, 30, Matthew 7, 13, Matthew 10, 28, Matthew 13, 38 through 42, Matthew 29, uh, 49 through 50. Can you see that Matthew probably believed in eternal torment? Just a thought. Um, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Mark 9, 20, uh, 43, 45, Luke 12, 5, Luke 16, 19 through 26. So just a few. And what you're going to find is they're in late passages in the Old Testament and the Gospels, really early passages in the New Testament. It's quite interesting. Just a thought. Um, but there are Bible verses for it, right? You know, you can look at them and it says you, you'll suffer for eternity. Um, this is, eternity is the, the, the words there. Forever. Forever and ever and ever. Eternity. Um, everlasting. These are the words that come up. Everlasting punishment. Everlasting torment. Everlasting. You know, these words are in there in the scriptures, and we have to wrestle with that, engage with that, and and do something with it. Um, the next view, though, is something called annihilationism, and that's similar but a little different. Annihilationism. What it believes is that, um, in a similar way, everyone lives one life. Um, they in, in, at some point on, in that life they either say yes to Jesus or they say no to Jesus again what that looks like saying a prayer having a relationship whatever you think is, is okay um, but at some point they make that decision and then when they die based on that decision something happens to them if they said yes to Jesus up to heaven they go and they spend eternity with Jesus and you know sunflowers and rainbows and butterflies and if they don't say yes to Jesus, they are destroyed. They're wiped out. They're eradicated. And there's a few different versions of this, but basically it boils down to two different versions. Um, One would actually line up with that conditional immortality I was talking about. You know how the original Jews, probably most of them, believed you were a mortal being and God either gave you eternal life or he didn't. Um, And so if you say yes to Jesus, you're given this eternal life and you go up and live in heaven forever. If you don't, boom end the story you're done and that's punishment enough as far as God's concerned you ceasing to exist um, another version of it though would be that you need to suffer for what you've done so you go to hell the similar concept of this eternal torment you go to hell you're tormented you're punished you're on fire it's horrible it's gross it's, it's, it's just a, not a fun experience but at a certain point 
God goes, all right, we're done here. And boom, you're done. Over. And the concept behind this is a little bit like what I was saying. You know, you imagine you're Steve and you're a good husband to your wife and you love your kids and you're a decent guy. You pay your taxes. You give to charity. You know, you're a nice guy, but you didn't say yes to Jesus. Do you deserve to burn for the same period as Hitler or Stalin or Genghis Khan? Right? And most of us would sit back and go, well, objectively, nah, I would say Hitler deserves a bit more time. Right? Hitler deserves to burn for a little bit longer than Steve. So Steve, you burn for a few years, a couple of weeks, a couple of hours, maybe a couple of centuries. But at a certain point, it's like, all right, Steve, you've, you've had your due. You've, you've paid your punishment. Now, boom, Steve ceases to exist. He's wiped out. Hitler, however, he's still got some time to pay, right? Because he's got a few million lives on his, uh, on his hands. So he's paying big time. But again, at a certain point, right, if we're going to be just, if we're going to be fair, at a certain point you go, well, how, how much is a life worth? Because you can say, yeah, I mean, it's worth a lot. And you could say one life is worth suffering. If you take out someone's life, you can suffer for one lifetime. So 60, 70 years. Oh, okay, let's say that, right? Maybe add 30 years just to be fair. So 100 years of punishment for every person you killed. Well, at a certain point, Hitler's run out of time, right? He pays his due. Might be billions of years, but at a certain point, it's like, all right, Hitler, come on, that's enough, we're done. He ceases to exist. And so annihilationists, that's what they would believe. They would believe that there's a ceasing to the punishment, or maybe there's no punishment at all. Um, maybe it's just uh, if you don't accept Jesus, if you don't walk with Jesus, you'll cease to exist. And uh, again, there's lots of language in the Bible that kind of supports this. And I'll, I'll read some of the scriptures again, or just I'll give you the verses. Um, and we can see this in, uh, you'll see that, do you remember the, the list I gave you the last one? Mostly Matthew, a little bit of Mark, a little bit of Luke. Look at annihilationism. This is really interesting. Matthew 19, 29 through 30. Matthew 25, 46. John 3.16, John 3.36, John 4.14, John 5.24, John 6.40, John 6.47, John 6.54, John 6.68, John 10.28, Romans 5.21. You see in a shift in which apostles might have shifted towards which views? It's just, you know, it it probably did color the way they worded things or how they put things across. It's it's possible. Um, But I don't think it should be surprising to us that most of Matthew talks about uh, eternal punishment and eternal torment. Most of John talks about a destruction, a ceasing, an ending. So the word there is um, you will be eternally destroyed. You'll be... um, and, And so you think about, you can't eternally be destroyed. You can't be destroyed forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, right? If I got this cup and smashed it, I can't smash it again. It's smashed. Right, and so once something's broken, once it's ceased, once it's once it's destroyed, it's destroyed. Now that it's destroyed for eternity, and so that would be the shift of an annihilationist. It's like there's definitely language in the Bible that seems to suggest some of the wording is like it ends. So the state of ending is permanent. So forever you will cease to exist, but it's not you forever will cease to exist. Like you know you'll keep ceasing to exist. Like you'll just cease to exist. Um, but again, there's, there's passages that are eternal punishment and torment, and like, you know. So we've got to hold those in tension. Um, there's a lot of really um, great uh, theologians I respect that would hold to annihilationism, and a lot of that is because they just go, "I just don't see eternal punishment as just." I, I really struggle with it because, you know, you live 80 years. How much damage can you do, mm-hmm. right? At a certain point, you know, you should, like in the billions and billions and billions of years of suffering, there should be a sort of point where you go, "Okay, that's." That's enough, God, right? You're taking it a bit far here, God. You're punishing people like you maybe like this too much, right? Um, Now, what's interesting about both these views is they probably do center a lot more around punishment. Annihilationism has the option of no punishment. So remember, we're talking about this justice of either it's punishing or it's restorative. There's no restorative uh, eternal torment. You eternally are punished forever and ever and ever. There's no restoration in that view. You can't eternally be punished and at some point you get restored because it's eternal. In annihilationism, you can um, 
be punished for a while and then there's this graceful, okay, you've had enough, I'm ending everything. Or you could have no punishment, which might be more compatible with, uh, uh, with how God is displayed in some of the, the scriptures. Um, but there's no restoration either, right? There's, there's just this kind of neutral ground. And so the, the restoration uh, group uh, of people that look at the afterlife and, and want to see restoration, want to see justice in a restorative way, they would be called the um, Christian Universalists or the Ultimate Reconciliationists. Um, and so there's a few different ways that that works out. There's quite a few different beliefs within that uh, belief. And so I'll explain it in general and then maybe I'll explain a few of the different ways people have believed it. Um, let me just take a drink though because I'm dying. Um, Christian universalists um, often get a really hard uh, time from a lot of Christians they get a bad label Um, and a lot of it becomes because people misunderstand a lot of what they're saying some of it comes because they understand entirely and they just hate it and that's that's okay (laughs) Um, but most of it I would say comes because they don't understand what a Christian universalist um, holds to and believes um, universalism is that everyone's going to go to heaven everyone's going to experience heaven and, and it's all good and it's all fine and that's, that's the end of the story Christian universalism is a little different Christian universalism revolves around Jesus and so a lot of Christians freak out when they hear universalism because they're like well Jesus died on the cross what did he die on the cross for if everyone's going to heaven whereas a Christian universalist would say Jesus died on the cross that's exactly why everyone's going to go to heaven so um, someone would argue with a universalist and say, well, there's only one way to God. It's through Jesus. And they'd say, universalism's wrong because there's only one way to God. Everyone's not going to end up there. Whereas a Christian universalist would say, there's only one way to God, and it's Jesus. And God's really good at getting what he deserves. So everyone's going to get to God through Jesus. So they don't, they don't take away Jesus. They just elevate Jesus to a place where he's maybe going to be able to do everything. And so... Um, that's not saying they're right or anything, or but they're just they they don't have a, uh, a a faith without Jesus, which is what a lot of people would label universalism as. But Christian universalism is centered and and revolves around Jesus. It does say Jesus is the only way. It does say Jesus is salvation. Jesus is the way to to God. Um, it just believes that Jesus really really good at getting what he deserves. Um, there's a few different ways that works out. And so, in a nutshell, if we were to describe Christian universalism, Christian universalism is that if on earth you say the prayer or you have a relationship with God or whatever we describe that, that, that thing is, if you do that, you go to heaven. You spend eternity with God. If you don't do that, you go to heaven and you spend eternity with God. But there might be some other stuff in between. There might be some process to go through so for some Christian universes there isn't you get to heaven and you go whoa oh my gosh I was wrong I'm really sorry can I get in and Jesus goes yeah of course come on in and that's the end and um, so Thomas Aquinas a great um, philosopher theologian he, um, he was famous for saying he says there's only one reason really that you would say no to God in this world and he says you would say no to God because God hasn't been portrayed to you perfectly and he says, well, actually, maybe there's two reasons. He says, maybe God hasn't been portrayed to you perfectly. So you might be presented an angry, vengeful, awful God. And you might go, well, I don't want anything to do with that God. right?" And I know lots of people that turn down a Christian God because they're rejecting a God that I don't even believe in. right? A terrible, awful, hateful God. It's like, no wonder they're turning him down. I can understand that. But there's another reason he says, well, maybe it's because they have a lot of hurt and pain and suffering and stuff that's going on in their heart that causes them not to accept love and forgiveness and acceptance and he says surely surely God would never if those are the two main ways that people say no and he says I don't see any other reason people would say no if they met Jesus as Jesus truly is surely they would say yeah of course but he says surely God isn't going to have you live your life and when you die, he's going to go, oh, sorry, no one presented God, me to you very well. So off to hell. He says, surely that's not the case. Surely you would say, wait, hold on. 
you weren't represented, I wasn't represented very well, let me represent myself better. Let me at least give you a chance to know who I am. But I'm not going to punish you forever for not knowing who I was. And he says, and the other option of they didn't accept him because they had hurt and pain and suffering. He says, well, surely God's not that mean as well. Like if like, well, sorry, you grew up in a crappy family, which I put you in, right? Because I'm God. And so that family that messed you up and caused you not to be able to accept God, that's a bummer. Off to hell you go. So he says, so he says, surely God wouldn't do that. Surely God would go, okay, let me take away all that pain, all that suffering, all that hurt and have you stand here as a, as a healthy whole person and let me represent myself as I am, Jesus, just saying, hey, I love you and this is who I am and this is what I'm about and I'm sorry that people said this about me or I'm sorry people pres- presented me as this. I'm sorry you thought I did this but I wasn't like that at all. He says, surely in that moment, everyone will just say yes because there's no good reason not to when you've got rid of your hurt and your pain and your suffering and you see God as he truly is. And so his argument was God wouldn't let people go to hell because of those two reasons. And if you took away those two reasons and God gave people a second chance, no one wouldn't. So, so to this guy, he would probably say that when people died and they hadn't had a relationship with God, they probably would almost immediately go to heaven, right? So there wouldn't be this big gap, this big time period between the two. Um, a lot other people, and, and I would say that's quite rare in Christian universalism. It's quite rare that people think, you know, um, Mother Teresa dies, she's in heaven. Hitler dies, he's in heaven. Very few people think it's going to be like that. Everyone just next minute is straight into heaven. Um, most Christian universalists think there's probably going to be a bit of a process. It's probably a bit of a journey. And let me say this, most Christian universalists believe in hell. They strongly believe in hell. But they believe that hell is different to what an eternal torment or an annihilationist would believe. They believe that hell is an experience is um, is a process. And so they would say that heaven and hell are not different places. Some might actually, to be fair, now let me be fair, some Christian universes would say they're different places as well. Uh, but hell would be a place where you go, you suffer, you experience um, what it is to have no part of God, to not experience his goodness, his creation, his wonderfulness, his amazingness. And in that place... Bit by bit by bit, year after year after year, maybe millennia after millennia after millennia, maybe millions of years after millions of years after millions of years, at a certain point you go, maybe I made a bad choice here, right? I don't know how long that would take. I can't imagine it taking long. Um, but I know some stubborn people and I'm pretty stubborn as well, so maybe I would take a while. But at a certain point they go, okay, this is ridiculous. Jesus, I accept your acceptance. I accept your forgiveness. I accept your love. And so after they go through that process of suffering and pain and hurt, they would come into heaven. And so that would be one view. Another view is, and this is probably more common, is that heaven and hell aren't different places at all. Um, an example of this is if we go back to, remember I was talking about C.S. Lewis's book, The Last uh, Battle. Um, in that moment, there was this group of dwarves in, in the world, and they uh, were part of his uh, his world, Narnia. So they were part of the Christian nation, but they didn't believe in Aslan anymore. They were like, ah, Aslan, it's like a fable. It's like a fairy tale. There's no such thing as Aslan. Like, we don't believe in Jesus. We believe in science. We don't believe in, like, Jesus. We believe in, like, the real reality. This is stuff I can touch and feel. You know, I don't know about Jesus. I just know about the real stuff. And what's interesting is that they were sucked up to heaven along with all the other people that loved Jesus. And in that moment, the people that love Jesus, they see Jesus, they see heaven, and they're like, wow, this place is beautiful, it's stunning, I can explore forever in an age, I'll be able to explore this beautiful place, and I'll get to walk with Jesus and be with Jesus. The dwarves were still sitting on the ground going, there is no God. This is an awful place. This looks terrible. And they were still, they, they on the earth, they'd been in this dark shed. And when they went up to heaven they still thought they were in a dark shed. And actually, when the children walked past them, they were like, who's there? Stop kicking mud on my face. They just couldn't see what was there because they chose not to believe in God. And so a Christian universalist would say, there's a process of being in the presence of God, but not experiencing it or not even enjoying it. And so there's a few other versions and views here. Some people would say you don't experience it, you don't 
witness it. So maybe that might be like what Christian, uh, what um, C.S. Lewis talks about there with the dwarves who are like, we just don't know what's going on. And people are telling us we're in paradise, but we don't know. Um, other people might say that actually being in the presence of God when you don't love him or you don't think he loves you, not particularly a good thing. So you look through the Old Testament. When God shows up, what happens? Usually one of two things. More often one, one thing than the other. Sometimes God shows up and people go, wow, God, you're amazing, and worship him. But not very often. Usually when God shows up, what happens? They go, holy crap, it's God. Oh, depart from me. I'm wicked. I'm evil. I'm filthy. We can't be in your presence. You see, when God shows up and you don't think of yourself as righteous, as holy, when God shows up and you don't think of God as good and loving, it's not a good thing. It's terrifying. It's awful. It's, it's horrific. And so people, uh, many people would say that God is there in hell and heaven. They, they would quote um, in the Psalms, David says, doesn't he? But remember, he doesn't have a theology of hell, so let's remember we're using this out of context. But it does say it in the Bible, so we can use it out of context if we want. Um, that's what most Christians do. And um, He says, even if I go down to the depths of hell, which is that word shul, which is, he just means when I'm dead, when I'm in the grave, when I'm rotting away, he says, there you are. You're there with me, God. Even when I'm dead, I'm buried in the ground. Um, and so... But the scriptures in our, in our translation is, even when I'm in hell, there you are, God. And so it's important that we see that there's room for this kind of view. So in the, in the New Testament, we see passages that say like, that the fire proceeds from the mouth of God. Like this, this fire in hell proceeds from God. It's not that God leaves. Love you guys. Um, okay. Yeah, we'll maybe see then, yeah. Um, it's not that there's no God in hell. It's that God is hell. He is hell as well as heaven. You, in your position, experience God completely different to how you could have experienced him. But they would say that God isn't being those things. He's not being hateful. He's not being spiteful. He's not angry with you. He's not punishing you. You're experiencing your own punishment that you are putting on yourself. And actually, he is only pouring out his love and his passion and his graceness. And he's saying, I accept you, I love you, I forgive you. And it's really easy when people love us and accept us for us to say no. Right? I mean, I'm sure you at times, because you've been hurt, because you've been suffered, or you have trust issues or something, someone loves you and you go, I don't trust that. Or I don't want to be close. Or I'm scared. Or whatever. And so... There's a possibility that God is pouring out his love and, and it takes people time to really, truly trust. Man, this actually is good. There really is good. And maybe I'm not as awful and terrible as I think I am if he could truly love me like that. And so they would say that hell is a painful and awful process. No one wants to sign up for hell. But it's a process that leads to heaven. That at a certain point you go, God, I see you for who you truly are and I accept you. I embrace you. So there's a whole bunch of different theologies on this and we could talk for ages about it. Um, there's an amazing book actually by C.S. Lewis that um, presents the concept of God being in heaven and hell. Um, it's called The Great Divorce. And in it, there's um, a bunch of people that live in hell and they get on a bus and they go for a field trip to heaven. And Bit by bit by bit, they come from hell and they get closer and closer to heaven. And as they get closer and closer to heaven, things are more perfect, more holy, more wonderful, more loving, more amazing. And bit by bit by bit, people on the bus go, I can't take this. I need to go back. And it's really challenging because there's something in us sometimes that can't accept just how good God is. That can't accept just how loving God is. That can't accept just how much he accepts us. And there's something of we have to push against that we have to experience it and at some point perhaps when we come back we'll get a little further when we come back we'll get a little bit further again but there's this ebbing and flowing in relationship and and the, the argument for a lot of ultimate reconciliationists is that's what it's going to look like it's going to look like us journeying through and learning to experience god's love and receive god's love so let me just give you a few bible verses for that as well 
And then maybe see if you notice anything about this as well. So John 12, 32. Acts 3, 21. Romans 5, 18. Romans 11, 32. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 28. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Titus 2, 11. Hebrews 2, 9. 1 John 2, 2. 2 Peter 3, 9. What are you noticing about those? It's not really the Gospels, is it? It's almost all the epistles. And so, there's a lot of room in the Bible for any of your beliefs. And the truth is, we have to acknowledge that all we do is we, if you believe one of these, so say, let's say I believe in annihilationism, all I do is I pick all those verses for annihilationism, and I say, those are the big obvious verses. And these other verses that seem to suggest universalism, that seem to suggest eternal torment, well, we just need to reinterpret them. But then that's what the universalist does. He goes, well, these are the main verses. And that's obvious. And actually, these ones that seem to suggest eternal torment or seem to suggest, we just need to reinterpret those. And the truth is, maybe some of these, when you look a little closer, don't support what they seem to be supporting. There's verses that seem to support universalism that you're like, probably aren't supporting universalism. There's verses that seem to support eternal torment. And you're like, that's probably not what it's about, right? Like when we talked about the throwing into Gehenna. So... We need to be careful not to just be the Bible says. We certainly need to be careful not to just go, my pastor says. Because <laughs> I think that's what most people have bought their theology from. Most people haven't even studied hell in the Bible. I, I've yet to meet someone that's done a good proper word study on hell. Um, outside of people that have written books on this and like really studied it. Like day to day, I don't meet anyone that studies this. And here's the thing. It's not important. It just isn't. Like, this is why it's talked about so little. What happens after you die? Not an important topic. What's important is what happens before you die. And here's something we can tell, is that as much as Jesus talks about heaven and earth, uh, heaven and hell, the majority of the time, it's not about later. Heaven and hell are a topic that Jesus brings to now. He talks about heaven on earth and hell on earth. And the thing is, I can't tell you what hell looks like after you die, but I can tell you what hell looks like right now. I can tell you that there's entire countries that are starving to death. There's people that are having their rights stripped away from them. There's someone getting raped right now somewhere probably. There's people that are getting murdered. That's hell on earth. And I can tell you what heaven on earth looks like as well. It looks like love. It looks like community. It looks like friendship. It looks like um, engaging with God and having a relationship with Jesus. I can't tell you what heaven looks like after we die. Because the Bible's really vague on that. If you think it's vague on hell, it's really vague on heaven. It says nothing about it. But what I can tell you is, I know what hell looks like on earth. I know what heaven looks like on earth. And I know what we're, as Christians, called to do. Jesus tells us to pray that heaven would be on earth. So we as Christians are called to go into hell, go into those worst situations and turn them around. You go into the situation where people are starving and you feed them. You go into the situation where people have nothing and you give them something. You go into situations where people don't know they're loved and accepted and forgiven and you love and accept them and forgive them. And here's the thing, if we focus on that, if you focus on bringing heaven to earth, and enjoying heaven on earth, I'm going to throw it out there, you're probably going to go to heaven. Right? That experience, because you have started eternal life now. If you start eternal life walking with Jesus, walking with the Father, knowing them, and walking in that, odds are when you die and you get raised up, you're going to keep doing that. But if you fixate on hell and you're someone that, that, that lavishes in that, you don't have a relationship with God, you've, you love pain and suffering and hurting people and all these different things, when you die and you raise up, I don't know what hell looks like, whether it's eternal torment or annihilationism or universalism, either way, you've got some bad times ahead. Because even in universalism, you've probably got a bit of suffering to go through and, and reconfiguring and rediscovering who I am and who God is. Like, so why not just put the eternal... Uh, the, the afterlife stuff to the side and let's just focus on how do we get people from hell into heaven today how do we fixate on moving people away from a uh, hell experience into a heaven experience because if we move people from that into that 
then the afterlife takes care of itself. And that's why I would challenge you with. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk. Thank you.